Hey, this is Kevin Nasri with Shared Secrets. Uh, on this week's episode, Dennis and I dive deep into all things bug bounty. Uh, we are exploring bug bounty using uh, the RTX Factors framework. So RTX Security is a consulting company that I founded, and we help a lot of people with cybersecurity program development, as well as software security and product security maturity. So if you're looking for any type of uh, capability maturity analysis to improve your cybersecurity or software security programs, please reach out to info at rtxsecurity.com. Enjoy this episode. No one knows my secrets, even if I told you. Dennis. Kev. Closing in on this uh we can edit this out, but you you like to talk about your marriage. You said you wanted to talk about your pending marriage on the podcast. Is that true? <laughs> I don't recall that, but yes. All it's right. exciting, but almost here. And uh, Sarah, my wife Sarah, said I should stick to the registry, but you have officially granted me permission to deviate from the registry. Not that you're like, listen, I know you're not hung up about what kind of stuff you're, you're not doing it for the gifts right <laughs> i get that but yeah. still i appreciate the uh i'm not sure what i'm gonna what i'm gonna do but uh, i know exactly what you're gonna do and i oh. already know i already know you've told me and i knew when oh, i was actually going I remember through that. yeah okay when i was okay. going through i was like noting that oh what kev said that he wanted to get us is not actually on, on. the thing yeah yes i also noticed that but i didn't yeah. know if it would be anyway yeah. we're talking about uh you, bind, you grind your beans wrong. That sounds weird to say. It's hard to say. You grind your beans wrong. You're not a conical burr grinder guy. I know. I know. You might as well it's just shameful. be like uh, microplaning your beans into a, <laughs> a grinder. I don't know. <laughs> um, Dennis, we've got a really, I think, timely and important discussion. And I say timely because I saw some... Uh, conversation somewhere that was asking a lot of questions about bug bounty. I also saw this pop up uh, on a LinkedIn feed for the topic of another podcast. So, Oh, it's in a different podcast. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, luckily I, this will probably be weeks before I get this one out. The door. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, didn't know that anyway, everybody's got different thoughts and perspectives. So if you're uh, thinking about bug bounty or working on bug bounty or have a problem with bug bounty, sounds like, uh, you know, too much information. When has too much information ever actually hurt anybody? Hmm. Well, yeah, I guess maybe like this, like most recent leak uh, from oh, Discord yeah. servers, the video game guys. One might That's argue really that, interesting, that too yeah. much information has potentially hurt some people. Yeah, take the politics out of it. That's a real interesting situation. And it's just like, just leaked for... I don't know, pride for, or something. Yeah, yeah, for like lulls or something. I don't know. Uh, when I was thinking about doing this, I was like, hey, it's a, like, how should we structure this conversation? And then I realized that I spent kind of, the you know, five years of my life uh, analyzing security capabilities. Uh, and I have a framework to do that. You did? You know what that? is it called? Would uh, it surprise you to say that I'm a framework guy? It would not surprise me in the least. Basically, you know, when when I'm analyzing a program, I like to to kind of model that program and describe it, you know, as a series of capabilities that might, you know, each capability might contain, you know, one or more activities, right? So you can kind of think about how you're teaming up on a problem with different, you know, things. Like for instance, you might have like a secure design capability that includes a 
survey, like a checklist approach, or like you might have a secure design review that like includes some non-functional requirement. Like that might be one thing you're doing, or you might you're doing multiple things collectively to try to making design secure. So, you know, so we have these capabilities and we have these activities and, you know, at, at these different layers, when you want to zoom in and understand, I think the problem that a lot of people get caught up in is that we just think about security as maybe one thing. Like, what would you, if I, it was, if I was going to ask you if, if X was secure, you know, what's, what would you think the question I'm asking you is? Does it have any security holes? Right. It's pretty one dimensional. It's like, could somebody hack it? Could somebody break it? But when we talk about security maturity and like a practical, we're building programs in types of way that one dimensional view actually leads to a lot of tensions, right? Like if we do everything we can to prevent something from getting hacked, like mostly like, let's just unplug that thing and lock it in a vault and put, you know guys with guns around the vault or something like that, right? Like it, there's a, there's a, there's always a compromise and balance there. So the, the framework that I use to kind of navigate some of these um, high priority dimensions of maturity or, or the ones that I, I found most useful maybe to be, it's called factors. Um, so we're going to actually play with bug bounty and we're going to use, you know, in a, in a lightweight way, we're going to use this factors framework and factors is a acronym. It's kind of a mnemonic, um, and you and I, right before the call, were uh, refreshing you on on what the mnemonic stands for. Not that you're responsible for learning my uh, my tedious framework stuff, but uh, let's let's go through it now that now that you've practiced mm -hmm. factors. F. What's F stand for? Friction. Friction across stakeholders of the thing. So we'll, we'll cut friction a couple different ways. Uh, the A stands for automations because anytime that we're using humans to do things um, that computers can do well, that's kind of a missed opportunity. So where you're at on the automation spectrum. And by the way, these you know things can be connected. You know, somebody could generate or something could generate a lot of friction because of a lack of automation. So there, there is, you know, some some connective tissue sometimes between these different dimensions. And I actually find that to be helpful rather than, you know, uh, confusing in any way. But maybe we'll get into that a little bit. C. Do you know what C stands for? I do. This is straight out of all those ABC baby books. C is for coverage. Both kind. This is breadth and depth, like you know, like how comprehensive, or you know, maybe this is is uh, you know, and and we see again, we see intentional trade offs in coverage, right? Like, mm -hmm. hey, let's turn off these noisy static analysis rules. We're going to decrease coverage to reduce, you know, maybe the the friction of false positives. Or a lot of times, I think uh, tensions can can or frictions actually can can uh, be born out of coverage decisions. T stands for timing. Everybody loves shift left, right? Mm -hmm. This is another thing that I saw. I've been seeing a lot of shade being thrown at shift left. You know me? We go back, listen to it. Two years ago, we're talking about not shifting left, mm -hmm. right? We say don't shift left. And you completely agreed with the concept of don't shift left, if I recall correctly. I think I, that, 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 sounds, that sounds like me. <laughs> blindly agreeing with whatever you say no just kidding no uh, i believe that we have and also just a real quick just a yeah. button i think that uh this is a message that is i think shift like i agree with your 
observation that shift left uh, is is getting shade thrown its way. I see. It's, I, I see. I see lots of LinkedIn posts, sort of. Um, yeah, you know, here's the, it's the same thing. If you're, you know, this application security, software security, it's a series of optimization. It's an optimization problem. It's not a maximization problem, right? If we maximize. You know, and shift left, you know, is is about like doing things earlier, like we're shifting left in the development life cycle. Well, you can shift things too far left and you can shift things left enough that causes a lot of frictions in other areas. Right. So when we think about, you know, the reason that we just call it timing and actually there's even, you know, multiple areas. There's when we do it in the development life cycle and, and also how long we take to do it or how fast we take to do it. So I think of timing as, as a d- critical dimension of optimization um, along with these, these other factors. And by the way, I found in, in reality that it works pretty well to kind of at least initially thinking about these to get things kind of equal weight across these areas. And then you can fine tune that to your particular risk profile. Like maybe you actually can trade off some some friction for some additional coverage or something like mm-hmm. that, given, you know, what kind of assets you're trying to protect. Remember what, uh, what O stands for? I do. Opportunity cost. Yes. And I have to remind you of this because uh, you always think cost is under the C and I, I tell do. you that no cost starts with O and you <laughs> never know what I'm talking about. I had no idea a hundred times about. we've done that. Opportunity cost. So I think people might just think about like, um, return on investment or return, right? Like that's how we usually look at cost or maybe we think about total cost of ownership, but, or, or a lot of things dealing with the financial and resource input, that's all well and good. And I think it's useful, but when you're looking at a program view, there's maybe this notion of opportunity cost That's kind of a good tool to simplify things. And the reason that we, that I say that is it's and a lot of times it's kind of easier to think about how much effort you're putting into something in terms of something else you're doing, right? So let's say that, for instance, you know, I can run three penetration tests for roughly the same amount of resource time and tooling investment as I can one secure code review, right? Mm-hmm. Now that's something that's pretty easy to figure out. And as leader as software security strategists, we're thinking usually in terms of like, you know, you making the most use of the resources that we have. Um, but that becomes where opportunity cost is really um, useful because it's a lot kind of easier to calculate, you know, how, what we don't own a tool to do this. What would we spend on that? What would we have to give up? It is actually also, I think, a lot more grounded in, in reality. Is that make sense? Yeah, I like it because I think it's sort of contextualized to your environment and you're sort of putting things, the cost perspective in terms of like one thing in your program versus another rather than just a a number. I think it connects activities together in a new way in which if we do this thing, we're going to be giving up some other things. So when you're looking at, you know, a robust, you know, security program composed of, of multiple capabilities and a lot of different activities it's meaningful. Maybe actually this other activity is um, proving to be a lot more, you know, useful in some dimension for us. Maybe we should invest more in it. And it becomes kind of this, this uh, uh, unifying uh, 
thread across different act- activities to, to think about opportunity cost. R stands for remediation. Like uh, we've done whole podcasts on kind of like the importance of root cause analysis and things like that. And what we're getting to is there's certainly problematic, um, you know, remediation, like, oh, we're not getting this fixed. So we're investing in this and hey, there's an opportunity associated with this and maybe we're not even fixing real issues. Um, but, you know, at a secondary basis, like maybe the most mature programs, it's not even just getting those particular issues fixed. It's actually, you know, fixing by class or putting in design patterns that avoid types of risks. So the R is something else for us to think about in terms of optimizing capability or, or, or in, in other dimensions um, around how good we are at uh, at making an improvement based on, on whatever the capability is doing. Uh, S is for security. Yeah. And security, exactly when we started this conversation, what is something to mean secure? Or, you know, practically speaking, how much harder is this, um, you know, is performing this activity or capability, how much harder is it making uh, for somebody to, you know, try to exploit it in some way or attack it in some way? Like maybe you're not like patching your systems and you're spending a lot of money on AppSec in general. Well, okay, you know, somebody's just going to exploit the the underlying operating system and gain access to, you know, the data assets via that, right? So is is this, is performing this activity raising the level of difficulty for adversaries to compromise this thing? Let's, now we can kind of maybe use this framework to uh, effectively talk about some, you and I both have some, some experience with bug bounty, not the end all be all experience of bug bounty, but we've seen a lot of different shapes of bug bounty programs out there in the wild. We've operated bug bounty programs. Friction and friction amongst stakeholders. So maybe like who are the stakeholders of a bug bounty capability? You know, your application security team. That's um, a good one. And maybe even breaking it into multiple roles of that. Like you have the leader of an application security team and you have engineers that might be, you know, like handling the results of an application security team. I, I know you like to separate yourself from the team so they don't get too cordial <laughs> with, your, with you. Oh my gosh. Um, no, that is that's a good one. Um, I, you know, here's an interesting thing for a software security group. We now have external stakeholders, the people actually submitting bugs, right? Mm-hmm. Like the notion of a bug bounty program is, hey, you want to draw on the expertise of you know, people that have different perspectives. So we have external stakeholders for the first time. We've already named two stakeholders. We can already start talking about some frictions. Yeah, um, but there is a third, right? Which is Oh, I think there's more than three. Actually, okay. But. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think there's three. There's at least ones. four super important ones. Oh, okay. All right. So we got AppSec team. We've got the actual hackers or researchers themselves. Yeah. What's your uh, third one? Mine was going to be the, I mean, the bug bounty platform uh, folks. Oh, I, maybe. Okay. That, you might not even use a bug bounty platform, but you're right. Like that could very well be a stakeholder Yeah, is, is the people operate, you know, you might use a third party and there's good reasons for that. Um, well, uh, let me, let me name one additional stakeholder here, the developers. They're the ones that have this code ownership and friction is certainly critical in this area because bug bounty, you know, if, for instance, it, let's take the AppSec engineering team out of the workflow. Like maybe it, maybe this is actually a reasonable idea in certain circumstances. Let's have the bug bounty data go directly to the developers. It might be very hard for developers to try to reproduce those issues. And, mm-hmm. and, and it there's then this tension between is the issue a false issue or is it not reproducible or is it not documented well? So that's why we insert the application security group in the in the middle of this kind of triage and mix anyway, right? So... 
Um, definitely a, an area for friction. Do you know what the last one in my head I, I was thinking of? I mean, this is the major motivating factor to use one of these platforms, I think, is um, you know the, the legal issues that can arise from bug bounty just involving these external stakeholders in a thing and you know what are the the guidelines for the program what's the you know the scope and and i guess we're getting right away into some frictions we've got all these new stakeholders that have their own motivations we're hoping they're financially motivated um but if we operated a program and we didn't put you know the right guidelines in place Maybe they're going to spend area and intention and effort in order to, you know, get some type of financial incentive in an area that we're not interested in. Maybe they're actually mm-hmm. attacking like a third party plugin or something that we don't control. That can generate a lot of friction, right? That's that's friction between the outside people and the people triaging it and maybe the the other teams. So um so that's a, a common source of tension is friction between, you know, the program operators. And which, you know, collectively may be legal and AppSec and the external submitters. Oh, totally. I mean, I've got uh, lots of talk about friction. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's obvious without even like getting into specifics, like you can, you know, you know, you're not going to share specifics, but a lot, you know, everybody's going to come to this situation. And I think we've seen genuine frustrations out there. And I think we've also got this element of kind of, bug bounty gaming in which somebody might, for instance, you know, the, the hottest thing off the, off the bug bounty friction front is people going around and submitting, um, merge PR requests to, you know, companies, public projects to see if that stuff gets merged and then reporting it. It's like, well, it's probably going to generate a lot of friction for people, right? Like if you're trying to do this good thing of like open sourcing something or providing access to something and you have these, you know, um, you know, PR merge requests or whatever, and, you know, using that, or we've seen, for instance, people taking a, um, you know, a large scale provider, like an MFA provider issue or something like that. And submitting it to literally everybody who uses that, that upstream service and like, yeah, we get it. It maybe there's some real thing here, but um, you know, you, you see these kind of campaigns in different spaces. The program operator in the AppSec team, what is the value that they're providing? They're providing a flat platform to submit the bugs. Maybe they're providing triaging systems or, or things like that. There might be technologies in play to, to validate things. So how well that platform works and the value it's generating and all that types of stuff. There's, there's, I think a lot of area for opportunity uh, or a lot of area for, for friction between, um, you know, these, especially these platforms that we use. There's areas of, of friction across stakeholders in terms of payouts, right? Like, um, I was just going to say, I mean, that was, <laughs> that's what I've been dying to jump into is like, Oh yeah, go. you are, you know, you are dealing with a lot of financially motivated individuals, right? I mean, that's most of the reason why someone's going to be participating in your bug bounty is they want to find something to get paid for their time. Um, but there are, uh, you know, it's a very wide spectrum of skilled people that you're going to be dealing with. And so I've seen firsthand, uh, you know, folks submit a bug, say, thank you. I would like my money now. And, you know, they're just wildly off base and you're spending a lot of time frankly, educating them on uh, how certain classes of vulnerabilities work uh, just to like, you know, try to provide them enough 
and, uh, explanation as to why they are well, not only why they are not getting paid, but why this is not a finding in the first place. So. Yeah, and uh, I mean, conversely, I think you, people spend time operating bug bounty programs, actually advocating for those very same people internally. Right? Mm-hmm. Hey, um, we think that this is an important thing that was identified. It's a high value thing. You know, we feel like the 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 you know within our rating skill and that's something that i would definitely advise people to do is to think about you know what are the types of impacts from things and try to associate that ahead of time um you know with general payment tiers and things like that or mm-hmm. you know the world is not is not necessarily always firing on all cylinders we see things like contraction and i think bug bounty payouts is certainly you know a prime candidate for some type of budget retraction right and then you're you know, maybe you're making an update to these payment scales, you know, could cause some additional friction, right? If we, you know, replace the chart all of a sudden, and, you know, if somebody submitted the same bug yesterday, maybe it paid out twice as much, that's going to cause some frustration and friction. This financial dimension, like, I think makes people sort of dig their heels in, uh, who maybe aren't as well versed in what they're actually trying, like what they think that they've found. Um, and then, right. you know, final thing that I'll say for friction, you know, as the reports come in and you are dealing with these individuals, you know, it, I mean, it certainly is like that, you know, it's, it's like growing your team by yeah. a whole bunch of people and managing those people and their emotions and their responses, because, you know, there can be reputational things on these, uh, bug bounty platforms that you want to, you know, respect and make sure that your org is well represented and that you're treating everybody fairly, but you're interacting externally with the community in a new way that's outside of your business. Right. So you you are then taking on a part of the kind of reputational um, dimension of your of your company in a way that you might not have if you don't operate a bug bounty program. Like not a lot of AppSec leaders are talking about their software security program, um, you know, in public forums or, or the bugs of the platform in public forums that much. So really important to uh, to take that at a new level of seriousness. I think we can pivot maybe naturally into automation on some of the tension that you brought up around bug validation and triage, right? And this is where probably you would want the highest amount of value to come from a platform or service. A lot of the the value that we might be acquiring when we go into a bug bounty platform is protect the time of my people by incorporating a service that's going to provide some triage and validation of those bugs. Yeah, totally agree. I think when it comes to bug bounty, you know, um, there's two areas I would look for uh, automation, right? One is exactly what you said. Uh, Like, can they, can it quickly identify a potential duplicate um, submission, right? So that we can try to spend less time grokking everything. Duplication, validation too. Is it a real issue? Validation, yeah. I think I just set my bar pretty low for what I would expect for automation around validation. I mean, that would be awesome. And, that would and be that's so because much. you've been calibrated to do that because yes. the, the truth of the matter is even if they're maybe good at it, it's hard to, as an AppSec leader to give up the keys and let somebody else drive on that, right? Like, well, what if they're wrong? Like, you know, they don't understand your platforms and things like that at the same notion. So say, giving the keys to the kingdom to somebody else to say, okay, you can filter out these potential issues based on what you know is scary, right? (laughs) Like I've seen AppSec leaders that just refuse to do it because it is so scary. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't, I I mean, I don't know. I presume that like, you know, maybe you can give 
the platform team members like that, the bug bounty platform team members better, you know, more access than the actual hackers would have to your environment. I don't really know who would likely it's do tough. that, but anyway, I don't yeah. know. but so that's, so, you know, duplication detection is what I would love, like, like to see, like, well, I do appreciate automation around the other is frankly, just getting the data of the report into the system that I, as the customer am ultimately going to use to track. Yeah. You're, you're, you, we recently talked about this is on our penetration testing one. And I think the same thing applies here. You you want the structured findings. Give me the, you know, let me give you a, a, a Jira web hook and stop, you know, inserting additional time, you know, of my people to kind of move data from one system to another system in a, a complex series of annoying copies and pastes. Totally. Yes. Um, and I just think that that's good, right? Because it sort of gets it right into your pipeline for, you know, your team to action or the developers to try to immediately action. It's just like, just reduces, uh, well, this automation reduces some friction. You're going to get a lot of people using automation to discover issues with your app. So applying that automation or automation services like DAST or things like that ahead of time, I think is an important part of operating an effective bug bounty program because you're going to find those issues first, fix them, reduce, you know, if, if the burp automated scanner is running clean or, you know, whatever your, 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 because a lot of people are just going to start as a bug bounty people of running that same thing, right? That's yeah. the the easiest way for them to find issues. So I think those companion capabilities and the automations there um, so that you get what you want, which is a new group of intelligent folks trying to break your app in new ways. You don't want to operate a bug bounty program as your penetration testing vehicle. Yeah. And I think this is going into, I was like... I had that point sort of earmarked for our next topic on coverage. Um, last thing I do want to say about automation as we were talking though, uh, and you had touched on this earlier, the other would be a report clearly a violation of my policy. And I don't invite, that sounds like scary. All I really mean is if I said, Hey, I don't want any clickjacking reports. It will automatically, like if it could tell me, Oh, Hey, someone submitted something. And it looks like you don't care about this finding. So we're just going to auto close it or respond with something so that you don't even have to like invest. Yeah. Because, you know, the policies grow over time as you get reports and you find stuff that, you know, frankly, you're like, okay, we just, that's not something that we're looking to the bug bounty community to help us detect or report on or what have you. Um, but as your team evolves over time, you know, I think folks is like, it just is nice to sort of be able yeah. to, punt that part away and not have to rely on every person on your team being an expert of what exactly your policy is. Maybe connected to that is, and it may seem like a, a trivial type of automation things, but having pre-built solid responses that can get tailored, you know, for, for your team or for the triage team or whatever it is. And, you know, it is 2023. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be you know, leaning on uh, their new GPT team member <laughs> to write some of these responses. I know people are using it for, you know, Jira ticket authoring and, and you know, every way that they can, they can make their life uh, a little bit simpler, which um, this is an area, right? Like, you know, you're communicating, right? And this is something that, you know, maybe it's worth considering because um, because of that, you know, going back a little bit to the friction, I, you know, there's people that, that use chat GPT, not because they can't write because they want to, 
you know, take some type of tone that they struggle with, you know, oh, I don't want to feel adversarial in this thing. Okay, mm. well, you know, people can use ChatGBT to write the same content or rewrite the same content in maybe a less adversarial way or something like that. So um, automation of, uh, it's connected to the triage, but having even, even though it's a simple thing, or maybe it's not a simple thing, but, you know, when you write that response uh, and submit it, you should probably be bringing that into a reference place somewhere else so that other team members or things like that can, can draw on it easily and can, and can tailor it to the particular circumstance. So reusability there, I think is connected. Uh, love that. That is very handy to have a catalog of these responses, like you mentioned, especially for, you know, when tensions run high, when someone doesn't want to believe that their funding is yeah. not a critical and they're not going to get paid $10,000, you know, just having a nice little, thank you. We respectfully decline, blah, blah, blah. You know, just, just, just it makes it easier on everybody. Yep. Uh, okay, cool. All right. Coverage. When we're thinking about bug bounty, I think coverage takes a little bit of a different shape, right? Cause you're not actually in control of the discovery effort as much, but maybe we'll, we should talk about you know, where you really want your bug bounty to be in terms of coverage. How do we want to set up these external entities, these external stakeholders for success so that they can find the right findings for us? And, you know, then we get into, you know, are we going to offer test environments? Are we going to offer authenticated accounts to people that are not necessarily real customers? Like, how are we going to set them up to improve their Mm -hmm. ability to find the types of findings we want? Totally agree. I mean, I think the most important part of coverage you touched on the last one, which is, if you're not doing the basics, it may not be worthwhile to dip your toe into bug bounty just because that's where everyone's going to start with your policy, you know, in your policy, directing folks towards, Hey, this is the area of the app that we care about. Um, and how do you identify those areas? You know, you nailed it too. take a, you know, an honest look at your team say, Hey, do we have skills gap in some area where we need, we would rely on and someone with this uh, particular expertise to look at that. Yeah. Um, and so and by, you mentioned the policies out there. You can scope and shape and yes. incentivize people to focus on those areas. If you're worried about session handling, you can say, hey, we're going to actually pay you know, a little bit more for, for stuff that's related to you know, authorization and session handling. Exactly. Because that is your one lever uh, like I, that I have found. It's your one and only lever, which is money. Like there could be important areas, but you don't want to incentivize people. Like maybe it's disruptive to your platform or, or you know, whatever. So you could off limits something that's, you know, particularly scary or something. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Like, you know, designation of in-scope and out-of-scope properties. Man, I mean, we're using a market system to solve a problem. That's what bug bounty is. Bug bounty, you know, I, I love the old, there's there's a couple of Freakonomics uh, podcast episodes out there where we talk about markets, right? And how uh, in, in terms of using a market concept to solve a problem, like they did with, um, organ donation, right? Like they went from having kind of a one-to-one market of organ donation, oh, you match with a particular donor, but then they introduced this like multiple match thing. So if you can find a donor to contribute to a market, um, and then, you know, that incentivizes uh, or opens the opportunity for these multiple way matches and improve the market of that. We're doing the same thing. We're trying to build a market to improve this incentivization model of people adopting and, and contributing bugs. Um, so if you disincentivize something, that's going to have maybe difficult to predict uh, effects, right? You're you know creating a penalty in a particular area. And it might mm-hmm. be the way that you actually say, oh, they're really worried about this. Maybe secretly 
you know, if I find some issue and contact them or whatever, they'll, you know, they're, it's going to be dangerous, you know, so just be wary on, on the false, um, you know, or, or creating a, a system that, you know, maybe out of, out of scope, something that's scary, maybe there's a better way to approach mm-hmm. that in terms of offering an inert version of that or something like that in a sandbox environment. Early on, I think the volume of issues is high as a program is starting or the maturity of a program is low. And as a, you know, as you build other security capabilities, I think your your bug bounty volume should go down in terms of especially like high value issues. Um, but they should also bring more value in into that. So like, oh, these are issues that we couldn't find with all of our capabilities. So that's actually a, a new value. So um might be a reason to make sure that, you know, bug bounty is probably not the first thing I would I would always start in an AppSec program. But uh yeah, I think, you know, over time you're gonna see, and that doesn't mean that your bug bounty program is getting worse. Right. That's you know, like it's just because you're getting, you know, uh four criticals a year doesn't necessarily mean that the 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 value of the program is not there. I think you got to really measure that in a lot of different ways to consistently understand the value that's getting generated. You want to jump into timing? Yeah, timing is usually about when it's done in the life cycle, but yeah. I yeah, I like your instinct. Let's talk about timing and we'll, we'll we'll start with that and then we'll get into other I mean, obviously the bug bounty, like getting submitted, like in terms of the life cycle, it's happening at the end or outside of the life cycle. Of, but I guess that's not totally true. It's not like totally could, true. But yeah, it's you like, could roll pre-prod code to a sandbox environment and open up your bug bounty there, right? Like there is exactly. Yeah, that's okay. right. So like timing to me is tough to control with a bug bounty program. Unless again, we pulled a lever I already talked about, which is money. And in the way that you just described, you have some new functionality, you do want to rely on the community of experts to take a look at it. So you do exactly what you mentioned, push that to a sandbox. The sandbox is explicitly in scope for your, your program and you're upping, you're upping the money or, you know, for a particular focus area in that sandbox, right? Um, you're like the area of functionality, whatever this new thing is that you're, that you're going to release and you're, you're worried about. Um, so you can control timing that way, right? That's a very specific use case. I think, though, just to talk about this more generally, um, you know, you're not going to control it, like who looks at what and when, uh, unless you're doing that. Private versus public bug bounty programs, invite only. I think, I don't know, you know, I think probably we can, let's talk about it here. Invite only, you have a group of people that you're going, that, and you can rely on them, right? Because... That reliability, I don't want to say accountability, um, but it's like basically like knowing that these people that are out there are actually looking at it. That's the biggest unknown with a bug bounty, right? Like you've got it out there. It's open to people to look at, um, but are they? When you start a program, um, you know, I think you're going to get a lot of eyes on there because they know like, hey, it's new. They haven't like... From their perspective, they probably haven't done this before. So let's go and let's hammer this thing so I can get try to make some easy money. And something that's not being done a lot, which in a DevOps world where you know the environmental scaling and things like that are solved problems, you could have dedicated sandbox environments for bug bounty, and that gives you the advantage of actually measuring activity in those environments. You can do coverage analysis of bug bounty. Like, you know, trade-off between do I want to do a pen test? Or do I want to do bug bounty, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, at least you're controlling the time of when. 
it like the security review is happening. You know right. that people are looking at it for like this amount of time. Um, you don't have that typically have that insight um, for public bug bounties. I should say probably private. You can, can do a bit a bit more control over that. I'm trying to think of other as I guess. So we've talked about timing of the program, which you know I, maybe we're we're both leaning towards for most organizations. This is not necessarily the first software security capability you would stand up. There's some experimentation to be done to say, hey, can I get a, I, can I get more attention in terms of can I get more tester time by increasing my rates? We had a person when I was running the OWASP Dallas chapter do a talk on what it was like, you know, to moonlight as a bug bounty uh, tester, right? Mm -hmm. And to my earlier point, they're like, I, they were saying, I look for new programs, right? Uh, because it's less likely that people have found some of like the easy stuff, frankly, right? So right. It's, it, I have higher probability that I'm going to get paid for something. Um, so the longer a program is out there, the less likely that I'm going to dive into it because I just frankly feel like unless this is something I'm super interested about, uh, I really won't waste my time with it. But keeping that in mind, I think announcing to like the program, hey, we are releasing new functionality that hasn't been tested by this group before. Like letting them know that there is some sort of fresh territory that's been unexplored by the bug bounty community. I think that would, that actually is a, I mean, it's still somewhat, I mean, it's definitely motivating them by money because of their, you would say, okay, if it's unexplored, then there's a higher chance that there might be you know, problems here. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's, you can maybe pull that lever without exactly having to change your rates. So opportunity cost. I think we already have some, some basic, you know, thoughts on opportunity cost. Um, but then there's also this notion of opportunity cost of like, Hey, we're paying out this much. Would it even be a better use of our finances? Like just cost monetarily, to improve our program somewhere else, some way mm -hmm. or, or something. Yeah, like that. I think absolutely that. The only other point for for this dimension I wanted to say is like bug bounty programs, and we've talked about this a little bit earlier, are not free in terms of your team's time. <laughs> like I mentioned, you know, you can get into fraught conversations with the you know with a, a researcher who just doesn't want to believe that it's a false positive or that it's not a critical, like you're, it, they found something that's going to tip your business over and you're going to go out of, you know? Um, so there is a lot of back and forth there, uh, which is why platforms often will have mediation services and stuff. Those exist for a reason. Um, so just don't think that like, Oh yeah, you're, you know, you're, this is purely vetted reports coming in that are all true positives and things like that. Like that, this is your team will invest time or someone's going to invest time. Uh, and, and not just your team, the, you know, we talked about legal. What about yeah. finance? It's a different, if you run an international bug bounty program and somebody submits a bug from, you know, Kazakhstan, what is the tax implication of paying this person? Remediation. This is, we talked about triage and, you know, and that's actually probably the biggest killer on, on remediation. And we talked about that developer friction of getting them a real issue to fix and enough information about how to fix that issue. That takes a lot of uh, remediation, energy, effort, optimization. So um, it can be pretty chaotic if, if uh, you know, you're, you're routing 
random issues to developers and they have no idea if they're real or not, or, you know, and they don't have the, the test capability to validate whether or not their fixes work and things like that. So I think it's pretty similar to penetration testing, except now there's a lack of calibration between the testers and developers. And you can, in the life cycle of a bug bounty ticket, right? It's like, okay, listen, we, you've submitted it. It's valid. We gave the remediation advice that you provided to the developer and we've implemented it. Now we want you to retest it. And once we've successfully fixed it, we'll pay you, right? Um, that can be a valuable strategy. And it, and it harkens back to your remediation maturity. It's very similar in other capabilities, except here there's this additional kind of penalty. This is actually something that should be solved in a framework, but you actually just solved it on this one input or something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Now, before I get a bunch of hate mail, uh, <laughs> I Which, do want to yeah, say- Yeah, can you do, let's share your your personal <laughs> Gmail address here for, oh, for all hate mail, because I've uh, been getting a lot and it's it's been taking a lot of my time um, to, to route that to you. Yes. So uh, I will say like, if you know that it just, you know, you have a long release one like cycle. Um, uh, I, I don't think it is fair to like, I, you, you got to f- see what, I don't know where it will lie on your internal fairness scale, if you will, but keeping uh, somebody on the hook. Exactly. Keeping them on the hook. Right. Like, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it is proper to make someone wait months and months and months because that's what your release cycle is to be paid for something that's valid. Right. I, I think it's a point in the, again, in the offering a sandbox environment dedicated to bug bounty, it's a point towards that in which, okay, can you test this code in this particular? So again, if you have the capabilities to, you know, if you're not constrained by environments, and I know not everybody is fortunate enough to, to, you know, have that, that, uh, you know, that automation and infrastructure as code biz, but where you do, this is a great place to apply it. Um, because you can get that code, you know, a specific version of that code out to a specific place to, to look at a specific issue. Final one. And this is actually what I think is so theoretically cool about bug bounty. How much more resilient did attack? We want to get more value to make this thing more resilient to attack. You have this kind of direct economic dial to say, you know what? I want to make this thing super resilient to attack. I can pay out a bunch of money for this particular class of vulnerability. And we see this in programs, right? You can get paid uh, huge amounts, you know, in oh yeah. You don't necessarily have to get better at bug bounty to incentivize more and more talent that bring a higher level of capability. It'll kind of market correct itself as well in sense of like if you're paying out too much for bugs, you know, like that you could have found in other ways, you'll you'll try to to divert you know, the, the funds. So this is exactly where bug bounties shine, right? Where it's like, mm-hmm. we can potentially bring these experts that you might have trouble hiring, uh, to put eyes on your, on your, um, on your systems. Right. And, and just try to just be a completely net positive here, uh, in terms of security resilience. I also think that the volume of bug bounty findings is maybe a really good, leading indicator of your security resilience as well, right? Yeah. The other thing too, though, actually, um, that we didn't touch on, um, is that, you know, you are like, you know, this is a community of people that you are dealing with. And Mm -hmm. as such, like you need to have a community manager, 
right? Like, and whether or not it's your, like, I'm not saying that you go out and you hire some full-time person to be this community manager, right? You need to understand that like that relationship needs to exist. Right. Um, because, you know, once you're not the shiny new, you know, sweet little lamb that's full of vulnerabilities and new, and they want to yeah. you know, sink their teeth into you and get paid out for, for all these vulns, like you've got to keep them engaged. Otherwise yeah. they're going to just look for the new program. So it, that, that part, yes, you have to market this. Like there, there is investment that you need to make if you want to um, keep attention. There's probably no more realistic measurement of security resilience as there is bug bounty because they're incentivized in a lot of times to just truly follow that path of least resistance. Whereas when we engage a penetration testing firm, they have a coverage base. We're going to get mad if they don't test for cross-site scripting. We're going to get mad if they Mm -hmm. don't have a coverage-based assessment. And at some time, in certain cases, that could that could prevent them from having the time to explore. Whereas, you know, on the bug bounty side, it's a little bit more objective-oriented, and you know, the the incentive models tend to line up more realistically with real-world adversaries when there is a new kind of bug. Right, folks. Oh, yeah. Then they know, hey, this is new. They haven't scanned for this before, so they can really help uh, in that regard. Um, you know, to identify any any places in your ecosystem where new net, like just you know, zero day type type issues exist. So, because again, they're incentivized to just immediately go out, start running scanners, start doing whatever testing they need to do. Uh, um, so I've seen it shine in those aspects. Too. If, if you're going to have the elevator pitch on why bug, when bug bounty programs can be successful versus when bug bounty programs can get really bad. And we've seen, I think, you know, some very extreme examples of how bug bounty stuff has gone wrong. It's in when things, it's the proactivity versus reactivity cycle. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to change the scope or payout terms or things like that after you've come into a conflict with them, you know, you're behind the bar on that. It's going to generate more friction. It's going to be a lot harder and there might even be other complexities there. Dennis, I think this was uh man, we're firing all on all cylinders here going into the wedding. Yeah, it was good. This is a great, I think very good discussion. Lots of and, good back and forth. And it's, it's the marriage on our famous marriage episode. It's the marriage of <laughs> factors, capability analysis, and an important AppSec topic. So, you know, love it. That's my, and that was off the registry. <laughs> no one knows line. my secret.